Well, welcome back, Trinity family, as we are continuing in a series that we are calling Letters for Exiles. And I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are new with us. My name is Nick Price. I'm the senior pastor here. And we are a church whose mission is to help people look, live, and love more like Jesus. So we are really glad that you're checking us out this weekend and that you're worshiping with us. We are in the middle of a series that we are calling Letters for Exiles, in which we're looking at the letters of First and Second Peter, which were written 2,000 years ago and yet have some incredible wisdom for us today, especially as we live in these anxious times. But I think it's only right that before we dive into our message uh, for today, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together in this time and place so that we might learn from you. We might learn what it means to be your people and be a part of your mission. And so we ask God that you would indeed open our hearts and our minds to receive that message. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was in college, I remember in my first year having a conversation that has really kind of stuck with me over the years. I had just become a Christian shortly before going away to school, and it was during that year that I found myself in an open lounge late in the evening with some of my fellow students. And one of them was uh, a student that I was uh, kind of getting to know. We were becoming better and better friends. And as things do in college, you know, the conversation steered through a lot of different topics, and we eventually ended up on the subject of religion and faith. And I let it slip in that moment that I considered myself an evangelical Christian. And what I meant by that is that I believed in Jesus. And as an evangelical, what I believed is that my calling was to bring good news to other people. But as I said that, uh, my friend kind of got this look on his face and, and seemed to be really taken aback. And I said, what? why? What's up? And he said, well, uh, that just kind of surprises me because you, you don't seem like that kind of person. And, and I, I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, most of my encounters with evangelical Christians uh, really have not been very positive. And he went on to talk about how he felt like whenever he was having conversations with them, that they treated him like a project, uh, that um, they really didn't care about him, and that they were almost kind of trying to shove their faith down his throat. And he just said that that, that was a real turnoff for him. And, uh, and he's just like, and you just, you seem like a really nice guy. You just don't seem like you're that type of person. And I had like two conflicting feelings in that moment. On the one hand, I was really glad that uh, my friend felt like I was a person that he could trust and that I wasn't somebody who is pushy or manipulative. But on the other hand, I had this sense as a young Christian that we as Christians are supposed to be different. And so I started to, to wonder, am I maybe a little too similar? Have I blended into the backgrounds too much? This is important, I think, for us to wrestle with because of the fact that Peter begins his first letter by calling Christians chosen exiles. He says that on the one hand, you are chosen, you have a purpose according to God, but you're also exiles, which means that you should be different from the world around you. But, but many of us wrestle with the question of how? What does it actually mean to be different? Does it mean that we're supposed to be pushy and bombastic? Or does it mean that we're supposed to live differently? What does that even look like? 
Which is why I'm really glad that we are now in 1 Peter chapter 4, because it's here he actually paints a picture of what that difference is supposed to be like. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, or, or maybe you have your scripture journal, we're going to be on page 18. And, and what Peter does is he actually starts by talking about what we're not supposed to be. Here's what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter starts off with this list of things that we as Christians are not supposed to do. And, and this might not really surprise most people because I think sometimes people think that we as Christians are supposed to be different from the world around us. But I think it's important to note the reasons why Peter says this. See, typically when it comes to talking about avoiding things, Christians have all kinds of little goofy phrases for the things that we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. We, we say things like, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't run with those who do. You know, maybe if you grew up in like a Baptist church, you heard something like that. And, and the reason why I think sometimes Christians say that is because we have this impression that as Christians, we're supposed to be better, that we're supposed to be better than the world around us. And the problem with that thinking is that it leads to an attitude of moral superiority. This idea that I'm better, more holy, more righteous than the rest of you people out there. And quite honestly, for those outside the church, when they see Christians kind of walking around with their nose up in the air, that's a really distasteful kind of attitude. It's part of the problem that my friend had with many of the Christians that he met. So, so the question we have to wrestle with is, why does Peter say this? Why does he tell them to avoid these kinds of things? It's actually not because Peter's like, you're supposed to be better than. In fact, he, he makes the point that, that many of them lived that way once before. He said that, that you used to be this way. This is what you used to do. So there's no room for moral superiority or looking down on other people here. What he says is he says, we avoid those things because although they look like they lead to life, they're actually hollow, empty and dead. They're a part of a world that's passing away. That's why he says in verse 5, he's like, we all have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the good news, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He's saying those kinds of attitudes, that way of living, is actually not a way of finding real life, even though our world would tell us otherwise. We live in a world that tells us that to truly be alive, we need to experience all of the wonderful physical pleasures and comforts that the world has to offer. But what Peter says is, he says, but if you really stop and think about it, you know deep down that doesn't satisfy. Uh, one example I can think of of this is when I recently saw the movie Bohemian Rhapsody which follows the story of the rock band Queen and their lead singer, Freddie Mercury. 
And there's this one scene in the film where, where Freddie and, and the band, they've kind of hit the pinnacle of their career. They have absolutely everything that you could want in terms of celebrity. Freddie's got this massive house. He has tons of money. And so what he decides to do is to throw this wild party where he just invites tons and tons of people. And it's like kind of a costume party. And so it's really funny. He's even wearing a crown as though to say, like, I'm the king of the world. And while he's throwing this party, he's jumping on tables. He's throwing out cash. He's giving gifts to people that he doesn't uh, even know. And he says something along the lines of like, why have friends when you can buy them? And it looks like he's having a great time. But the, but the scene I'm thinking of is what happens right after that. There's this moment when we see Freddy's on a couch after the party has ended and there's just like trash and leftover drinks and even clothing like strewn all over the place. And he's just sitting there with this blank look on his face. Like he's empty. And at one point, he even reaches out to one of the waiters who's kind of cleaning up to try and like flirt with him. And, and this guy like responds to him really, really harshly. And then Fre that's when the mask finally comes down and Freddie asks him if he would just be willing to sit down and talk with him. And they have this discussion and Freddie says, I'd like to, to, to meet with you again. I'd like to talk with you again. And the waiter says this line, he says, you can come find me when you find yourself. It's this moment of, of realization that although he had every physical pleasure that the world could possibly give him, it ultimately didn't lead him to life. And Peter says, that's why we don't participate in those things. Because we want to pursue a life that actually has depth and meaning, that's truly fulfilling, that isn't just about physical fleshly pleasures, but is about being alive in our spirits. So what does it look like to live differently? And well, that's what Peter talks about over the course of the rest of this chapter. And specifically, Peter gives us kind of four things, four things that are supposed to mark the life of those who are called followers of Jesus. And I want to run through each one of them because I think each one of them is something that our world desperately needs, but that we don't really understand. Here's the first thing that he says. Verse 7, The end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says that we're supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, this is important because we live in a society that thrives on the instant reaction, where complex ideas and issues have been reduced to 150-character tweets, and where the rest of our world just kind of goes with the flow that whatever people are outraged by, that's what we should care about. And we just kind of get whipped back and forth between different trends and different issues and different things we should care about. And, and we no longer have deep conversations about anything. In fact, many sociologists and, and, and leaders have said that one of the things that frustrates them is that we've lost the ability to actually have a nuanced conversation a deep conversation about the things that actually matter. Which is why I think Peter says, we need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. We have to be thoughtful people. And I love what he says. He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. See, what Peter is saying is he's saying, rather than just reacting, you need to slow down and pray. Rather than just responding, you need to go to God and seek his wisdom. I mean, can you imagine that for a moment? What if Christians were known for being the people who could enter into these heated, contentious cultural debates and actually bring about understanding and, 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 and reconciliation? What if Christians were known for listening first and then responding? 
What if Christians were known for not just picking up another sandwich board or sign and screaming into another megaphone, but actually sitting down and thinking through the issues in a nuanced way that reflects what we believe in all of its beauty and robustness in a way that the world stops and takes notice? I think that the gift that the church could give to the rest of society is finally this idea of what it truly means to live life with wisdom. And that's what he's saying. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we slow to react and quick to pray? Are we willing to pray about the deeper issues and seek God's wisdom? That's the first mark of a follower of Jesus. Second thing that he says is this, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter says the second mark of a Christian is that we should be so loving that we're quick to forgive. And again, that's important for us because we live in a world that thrives on the revenge narrative. And this isn't a new thing. Everything from Hamlet to the Count of Monte Cristo to the John Wick trilogy are all revenge stories. And we see the revenge narrative crop up in comedy, drama, and action movies. And the reason why is because we have a society that tells us that we need to fight for our rights and get even when people cross the line. That's what we know. We are not quick to forgive. And yet Peter says, but that is what should mark people who are called Christian. Who would consider Jesus their Lord and Savior because Jesus was someone who loved extravagantly and forgave quickly. And let's be really important about what forgiveness is and is not. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we ignore wrongdoing or that we minimize it. In fact, forgiveness by its very nature acknowledges that there was a problem, that something wrong was done, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't hold that wrong against the person. Rather, it seeks reconciliation in the relationship. I think that's why Peter tells them to love in a way that covers over a multitude of sins. And so the question, again, that we have to ask ourselves is, are we slow to retaliate and quick to forgive? Are there relationships in our lives that we've said we forgive people with our words, but in our actions and our behavior to them, it's very, very clear that we're still holding it against them? Peter says, not so with you. What would it look like if a world that thrives on revenge suddenly encountered a community of people where forgiveness was given frequently and often, and in a way that actually leads to reconciled and restored relationships? Peter says, that is what is supposed to make you different. Third thing that Peter says is this. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And what's so cool about this word for hospitality is it's the Greek word philozenos, which literally means loving the stranger. See, what Peter means there is he says, you as Christians are supposed to be those people who embrace those who are different from you. And again, so important in our world today where, where communities are, are built around like-minded things, where we have algorithms that actually show us things that only affirm our biases, where we simply form communities with people who are just like us, where, where even dating relationships are filtered through online search engines that are entirely driven by our personal preferences, where we've lost the beautiful mystery of embracing someone who's different. But Peter says, you are to be a people who love the stranger, who embrace those who are different from you through acts of hospitality. 
And I think we're hesitant to do that because we've got a, a messed up idea of hospitality. We think that hospitality simply means that we have to like get our houses cleaned up perfectly and it's gotta look like that HGTV dining room set. And, and we can't invite people into our spaces until we get to clean it up and, and put on a show. But that's not what hospitality is all about. Hospitality is about embracing other people in our everyday circumstances in a way that tells them that they are valued, not because of who they are or the similarities that we have. They're valued because they're made in the image of God. And it invites them into our spaces because we want an authentic relationship, not some sort of presentation that we put on. I love how Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The, Ho the Gospel Comes with a House Key, puts it. She says this, Hospitality shares what there is, that's all. It's not entertainment, it's not supposed to be. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that, that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. That's what hospitality is. It's inviting people into your life and into your spaces in a way that serves and loves and cares for them. And what I love is that Peter actually uh, is using a word that's only used in two other places in the New Testament. And it's, it's used in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. And both are lists for elders, qualifications for leaders in the church. They're called to be hospitable. And, and what, I, what he's basically saying is this. He's, a, he's saying hospitality is the real mark of Christian maturity. And this is important for us because oftentimes I'll talk with, with fellow Christian leaders or small groups and I'll talk about the importance of opening up your small group or opening up your home and inviting new people in. And people say, oh, we don't want to do that. We really like our community. We like the friendships that we have. That, that's uncomfortable and things like that. And what Peter is saying is he's saying, if that's your reaction, you're not as spiritually mature as you think. Because you are called to approach the stranger the same way Jesus approached you opening wide your life and welcoming them in. He says, hospitality in a world that thrives on throwing parties for people who are just like us. He says, hospitality paints a different kind of picture of what real community is all about, one that our world desperately needs. That brings us to the fourth and final thing that Peter says. He says this, he says, each of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He says that we are called to serve. Now, we've spent a lot of time on the subject of service in this series already. I'm not going to belabor the point here. But the point being, when he talks about service, it's service that points other people to Jesus and to the grace that he has for us. And what's important here, what I think Peter adds that we need to understand is he's saying, you've been given gifts to steward and use for the sake of others. And he's talking about your time, your talents, and yeah, your financial treasures. I once heard somebody say that if you really want to know what a person values, you look at their calendar and their bank statements, that will show what really is most important to them. And we live in a society that tells us to use our time and our treasures really for ourselves and for what we want and the life that we desire to build. And Peter's saying, not with you, not as followers of Jesus. You serve selflessly, giving away what you have because it's not really yours. You give it to benefit others in a way that points them back to our generous and loving God. These four things are to be what make Christians a good kind of difference. 
people who are thoughtful, loving and forgiving, hospitable and generous. Those are the marks of our life. But what's most important and what I don't want to lose as we kind of come to the end of the message is the reason why we do these things. He says the end of all things is at hand. He says we live this way in light of the world that Jesus himself is building. And that's really, really important for us to understand because of the fact that that we understand that though the world doesn't understand this, this is what the world will ultimately be. Peter actually says later on in verse 12, he's like, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, look, if you live this way, the world isn't going to get it at first, but this is what the world will ultimately be when Jesus comes again in his glory. That when Jesus comes and inaugurates his kingdom, it's going to be totally unlike anything that we currently see. It's going to be a world in which wisdom replaces outrage where forgiveness replaces retaliation, where hospitality replaces exclusion, and where generosity replaces selfishness. And he says, and although the world might not understand that at first, that is what the world will ultimately be. And that's how we're called to live. Because that's exactly what God has given to us. He gave us new life in Jesus, even though we didn't deserve it. Even though we were once living the way that the world lived, he says, not so with you because you've been redeemed. You've experienced God's own wisdom, God's own loving forgiveness, God's own hospitality, God's own generosity. And when you understand that, it changes how you approach every other relationship, every other context that you find yourselves in. And I love how he, he ends this chapter with probably the best summary of the letter so far. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our God is a good God who's given us all things And so we live in ways that reflect him, his character, his kingdom, not the world around us. Because that's the way to real life. That's the way to real restoration. That's the way to real forgiveness. That's the way to real inclusion and love and fullness and a brand new community. That's how we're called to live. That's what it means to be a good kind of different. It's with that in mind. Would you close in prayer with me? Let's pray. Lord, you call us to, yeah, be a different kind of people, different from the world, but not just for the sake of being different, but ultimately for painting a different kind of picture of what the world will be one day. A world marked by your grace and your forgiveness, by your hospitality and love, by your generosity and wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be those kind of people, that as we learn to look, live, and love more like you, we would indeed help others to do the same as we live out this new kind of calling to bring foretastes of your kingdom here and now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.